Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this is Jasmine Singer. And on this week's show, Jasmine's guest will be veterinarian Dr. Andrew Knight. And they will be discussing the most recent research regarding what I think may well be the most heated and controversial subject within the animal rights movement. I know that many of you will immediately know what I'm talking about. What do you feed your dogs? And wait for it. What do you feed your cats? We're going there. Oh my God, Marianne. You were so (laughs) funny when we discussed this. But it is about other things as well. But yes, that is the main focus. And he does definitely shine a new light on this. There's been a series of studies that have looked into the healthiness or lack thereof. Uh, And, you know, you might be able to figure out where he where the studies come out. But I will tell you this. I came into this interview with a pretty intense uh, bias that I no longer have. (laughs) I'm not sure it was a bias. I mean, we're talking about cats and we're talking about what you believe was the right thing. And he may have given you information that has shifted what you think is the right thing. That's my understanding. Accurate. And yeah, it's, it's pretty radical stuff. It's very exciting. I mean, Dr. Knight is iconic. Wouldn't you love like, like there's no way I will risk my cat's health, but God, I would love to not be feeding them dead animals. It's just horrifying. Well, I sort of think that after you listen to this, you will change the way they eat. I I, I feel that pretty... St- I, I actually really think you might. So anyway... You know, I've been waiting, as I'm sure many of our listeners have, for the, for the introduction of cellular meat or cultured meat mm-hmm. for the cats. You know, I don't really care about it for me, but I wanted it for the cats and yeah. for the entire world to stop eating, you know, animals, all the other humans. I think I told Dr. Knight this, but my cat Stella's favorite food is the Impossible Burger. It's not like I put entire patties in front of her, but when I'm eating it, like she just immediately is in front of me, like trying to take it out of my hand. And that's not that's not generally her personality. So, yeah, no, I've seen Stella's enthusiasm for those Beyond Burgers. It's it's strong. It's strong. And there, you know, there are those new mouse treats coming in cultured mouse meat treats that are coming out soon. Yeah, right. We talk about that too. I, I want to be on the list to get them for Stella. I'm very excited about it. I feel like we're just about there at the moment that we've wanted to be at. And in the meantime, I think you might think differently about what you feed your cats. All right, I'm going to stop teasing it because we have a few other things to discuss, but definitely... Please, no hate no hate mail. We're, we're just tr- trying to find our way. <laughs> or if we get hate mail, like I, Vicky, if you're listening to this, can you not send it to us? It hurts our feelings. <laughs> Good idea. Like forever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Unless you think it's really right. Yeah, Vicky sort of intercepts the emails. And I'm just saying right now, I'm a sensitive human being. <laughs> okay. So I'm a sensitive human being who went to a wedding this past weekend and indeed teared up, which I said I wouldn't do. But there you have it. I did. And it was uh, in the Poconos, which is, you know, in Pennsylvania. And it's a place that we went on vacation when I was a kid. Did you ever go on vacation to the Poconos when you were a kid? Oh, absolutely. I loved it. We went to this place called the High Point Inn. This was a very long time ago. This was like in the 50s. Those are the 1950s. And, um, <laughs> do I have not to the, clarify not that? The 18, not I the I guess 18, they weren't 50s. in the future. Uh, yeah. And I loved it. It was beautiful. And I, they had maple syrup. 
And that's the thing I remember the most. And they had pinball machines and ice skating. And it was great. I just loved it. The Poconos are beautiful. People like think of it, the Poconos is, you know, it's kind of gotten a ki- really kitschy yeah. uh, reputation. But right. lots of the Poconos, are, they're in Pennsylvania and they're just lovely. When my mom was growing up, she went to like the Jewish version of that. It was still the Borscht Belt in the Catskills. And she went to Camp Blueberry with her entire family. It was sounds like dirty dancing, like the dirty dancing experience. And to be honest, this was sort of like that. Like it was like camp. Like you get this sort of balance of autonomy and group activities and you can choose from archery or swimming or making crafts or doing the zip line or kayaking, which I did, or, you know, going to the little lake beach or playing ping pong. It goes on and on and on. Like there was so many things to do. And then I just napped for most of it, which is like, you know, a thing I do on vacation. I just Napping is also fun. Yeah. By the way, I didn't tell you this. They had an awards ceremony at the end and I got best eyewear. (laughs) Oh, well, yeah. I mean, (laughs) as soon as you walked in, the rest of the eyewear competition must have just like sighed and said, oh, yeah, (laughs) that's not going to happen for me. I was very happy. Do you think it's possible that they they created that category for you? They did. No, they did. It was a a (laughs) write-in category. They did. But anyway, so... Interestingly, the wedding was the people getting married were vegan and the wedding was like, I would say 60 percent, 70 percent vegan with very clearly marked signs. But uh, also there was non-vegan food, which was a little interesting, especially because I went to this one meal where it was a buffet and the the servers or the the lodge had forgotten to bring out the animal-based sausage and the animal-based eggs. So they had Beyond Sausage and they had Just Eggs. And like, so everyone was taking it. I mean, we all know this, right? Like everyone listening to this is like, well, duh, obviously. They're very close analogs. And people were just shocked. So it was, it was like, it was weird to be so out of my element. Like I was in a very meat-eating kind of world for a few days, except for the people getting married, my, my dear, dear friends. Anyway, so I just thought, okay, it's vegan advocacy. It's vegan advocacy. It could be a plan. Like you have your wedding and you tell everybody that it's both animal-based foods and vegan foods. And then you quote unquote, forget to bring out the animal-based foods. Everybody eats the vegan food and realizes, because otherwise they wouldn't even taste it, realizes, oh, this is really good. I think everybody should get married just to pull that off. Or you don't specify it's vegan and then you tell them after. That's a little dicey. I did witness this one person like taking a piece of sausage from her brother's plate and she was like going to eat it and she said, oh, is this is this real? And and he said, oh, no, it's vegan. And she would put it back and she's like, no, thank you. And I'm like, oh, my God. Welcome to 1995. I hate humans. I hate them. Well, interestingly, when we were it's about a four hour drive when we were driving down, I guess it's down. Yeah, down. We went through Binghamton and stopped at a vegan restaurant, but they were closed because their AC was broken. And then we drove to we kept going to Scranton where Biden is from. That's just a side note. And there was another vegan restaurant there called Eden Vegan Cafe. And 
it was amazing. Like I, I, I just love that there we're just everywhere. And and like I was in Scranton. By the way, Scr- you would really like Scranton. I didn't tell you that yet, but it was definitely your kind of city. Like it reminded me of like you know Pittsburgh and kind of Rochester in that in that sort of like grittier, but. Uh, like, I love Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh yeah, is, I love it too. Pittsburgh's a great town. I just like small cities uh, yeah. or, or mid-size, small and mid-sized cities. Yeah. Uh, when you wrote your article in, in Veg News about Rochester being a great small city for vegans, I saw one comment from somebody in Rochester saying, we're small? When did we become small? I thought we were mid-size. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> so I'm very careful now to always say small or mid-size. <laughs> I have a good friend who lives nearby in Ontario, Canada. And I mean, Ontario, New York, sorry. And I said something to her, like, do you get to the city much? And I meant New York City. And she was like, oh, yeah, well, mostly to visit you. And I was like, what? And we had like this who's on first moment until I realized that she thought that when I was talking about the city, I meant Rochester. Well, that that is a classic New York City re- resident or ex-resident faux pas to oh. call it, no matter where you are on the planet, you call New York the city. It's what we do. We can't help it. We can't stop ourselves. So I love this banter. It's like nine minutes in and we haven't gotten to anything on the list. <laughs> so I guess we should get to it. So let's start with let's start with discussing this press release that we got called Help Stop Cruel Cub Petting and the Big Cat Pet Tree. Can you talk about this? You know, it's it's kind of bill passing time in Congress and we are getting some attraction on animal bills. It's kind of the only issue left that is even remotely bipartisan. So it's passed the House. This is called the Big Cat Public Safety Act. And it's going to go to the Senate, which, you know, is where so many things go to die. And we're going to hope that it doesn't die because it's a, it's a good bill. Call your senators in Washington if if you can. It It prohibits the possession of lions, tigers, leopards, cheetahs, jaguars, cougars, or any hybrid of these species by private individuals. You wouldn't think that kind of a bill would be needed, but of course it's desperately needed because there are huge numbers of these animals living in private hands, far more than are living in the wild in the entire world. It has some annoying exemptions like zoos, um, of course, and universities. Why would universities have, have tigers, you know, mascots? I don't know. And sanctuaries, which is a good exemption. It does have a grandfather clause, which is really annoying, but, you know, you got to do these things to get things passed. And people at least now will have to register these animals um, and they can't breed them uh, or, of course, acquire more of them. This is a really, really big provision. It restricts direct contact between the public and big cats of any age, which would eliminate the photo shoots with, with cubs. Uh, which are just a disgrace and so hideously cruel and exploitative. So good bill. Nice to see some traction on animal bills. So, yeah, let's hope that it gets through the Senate. And we'll put a link to this action alert in the show notes that correspond with this episode. So there's another animal story, obviously, that we were talking about. We were ultimately decided to talk about it because there's so many interesting inroads to this story. It's about an animal sanctuary called Asha Animal Sanctuary. And why don't you give us the brief about that? This is not too far from where we live. It's it's, it's near um, Lake Ontario, but further, further west from us. It's a small sanctuary. I think they have around 50 animals. 
and they are in the news of late, in the local news. It's in Newfane, New York. Apparently, it, it is near or or close to a cattle the raising, I guess, farm for quote-unquote beef cattle. That's what they like to call them. They like to call them after the food that, that they turn them into. According to the um, sanctuary's owner, Tracy Murphy, two calves wandered onto her property and she took possession of them and she didn't know who they belonged to. And then her neighbor, uh, some quote unquote farmer, came and said the, uh, they were his. And she said, I don't know that they're yours. And anyway, I've been spending money on taking care of them. So I need proof that you own them and you need to at least pay me and, and I would like to keep them. And of course, things went downhill from there. There have been all these protests. There are these signs out in front of her sanctuary saying, shame on Asha's, return the cows, cattle rustling. Uh, and apparently it's become quite a big issue within the town. All right. This is a local story. And I, yeah, I wasn't going to talk about it, but I just thought this is a sign of things to come as we have more and more sanctuaries and people are becoming more and more willing to act out strongly for animals. They're not just going to give up if they come across an animal who who is, you know, is going to be returned to be slaughtered. Apparently, according to the quote unquote farmer, these are 4-H cattle. And, and you know, we, we know what happens to 4-H animals. It's hideous. Feelings are running high. And and it'll just be really interesting to see what happens and to see if these controversies, I think sanctuaries have always tried, or most of them have always tried to really get along in the rural areas where they tend to exist. And there might be some some shifts in that because, you know, feelings are running higher in this movement than they used to. And actions are running stronger. I think it's largely due to DXE, the, the idea of the right to rescue. So, you know, check this out. I, I think she could, she could, Certainly. I, you know, we don't know her personally and we've never been to the sanctuary. Not saying that, you know, that this is our personal charity, but I think she probably could use, if you're so inclined, she probably could use some donations. It's just interesting. I can't see it ending well, but who knows? Who mm -hmm. knows these days? Agreed. Yeah. So it, it spread the word about it, too, because that's another layer of any campaign, right? Like just Hopefully they win, but oh, I'm thinking of my book that I wrote. I don't want to give anything away because I'm hoping it gets published soon. But let's just say someone has a campaign. It doesn't go well, but then there's a media element to it that does. So art imitates life, imitates art. I hope that this that this sides on the side of the sanctuary ultimately, but spread the word. Yeah, I think you need to explain a little bit more about what your book is. Right. Okay. So it's a YA novel that I'm currently trying to sell and it's like animal rights themed. And so I'm sorry that I went on that tangent. I usually expect <laughs> that people are in my head and they're not like, so, you know, that sometimes I'll, I'll just say something to you. I'll be like, oh my God, it was the green one. And you'll be like, what? And I'll be like, you know, the other day when we were talking about the shirts that like, I just finish conversations days later. Does anyone else do, do you do that? Uh, I don't think so. But if I do, let me know, because I'm going to try to stop. <laughs> okay. Like I said, there are a couple of articles in local newspapers. It hasn't gotten any national attention. We'll link to them in the show notes. So let's get to our interview, shall we? Yes, absolutely. Because I am super excited about it. And, uh, you know, basically, I think it will, will be life-changing. <laughs> 
So Andrew Knight is a European, American, New Zealand, and RCVS recognized veterinary specialist in animal welfare. In 2015, he established a center for animal welfare at the University of Winchester in the UK, where he is a professor of animal welfare and ethics. He has numerous academic and popular publications and presentations, including a series of YouTube videos on animal welfare issues, as well as a book, The Costs and Benefits of Animal Experiments. His recent research focuses on the contributions of livestock to climate change and on plant-based diets for companion animals. He will be joining Jasmine right after this. I'm Miyoko Shinner of Miyoko's Creamery, and today I want to share my love story with you. But first, I want to let you know that you can get 15% off your next order at miyokos.com with offer code HENHOUSE15. Growing up, my father and I would travel to faraway places in search of cheese. Ripe cheese, stinky cheese, velvety, soft cheese. It was an obsession we bonded over. Our shared love for cheese took me to France, Italy, and nearby Sonoma. As I got older, my tastes remained the same, but my values changed. I became a true lover of animals, not as ingredients, but as living beings. In those days, there was no way to satisfy both my palate and my soul, so I started making cheese myself by culturing plant milks instead of animal milks. Through trial and many errors, through the noise of naysayers and through a commitment to compassion and craft, I made something I love, and I'm here to share it with you for you to share with your loved ones. At Miyoko's Creamery, we craft the finest plant milk dairy products in the world, right here in the heart of California's famed wine region, Sonoma. Through our craft, plant milk, cheese, and butter, we honor traditional dairy-making methods while finding novel ingredients with nature's bounty. The food we make is made of love for the planet, for all living beings, and for you. With love, Miyoko. 15% off your next order at miyokos.com with offer code HENHOUSE15. Welcome to our HENHOUSE, Andrew. Uh, thank you. I'm so excited to talk to you. And before we get started, can you tell our listeners where you are today? I'm in Southampton, United Kingdom, one hour south of London. Wonderful. We have a lot of flock members, we call them, our, our members in the UK in that area. So I'm sure they'll be very excited about this interview. And I have so much to unpack with you. Let's start with our discussion with the study you conducted. I'm sure that you don't have to convince any of our listeners why it's important to be vegan. But of course, many people are worried about whether a vegan diet is healthy for their companion animals. Hopefully, this study will put those fears to bed regarding dogs. So let's start with dogs. I'm holding mine, by the way, which you see because we're on video, but our listeners don't know. I'm holding my wonderful 15-year-old vegan dog, Birdie. Can you tell us, including Birdie, about the design of the study that just came out? Yeah, sure. And by the way, uh, before I start, I must congr congratulate Birdie on uh, his ears. He has the most beautiful, <laughs> beautiful ears of any dog involved in a podcast with me in uh, <laughs> re recent times. And they're very wide and they, I feel like he could almost fly at low level uh, using Oh, definitely. We'll include a photo for people listening who want to see. We'll put one in the show notes. <laughs> Fantastic. So I've been a, a veterinarian in small animal practice treating uh, dogs and cats for nearly a decade, mostly around London, before I got recruited to go and teach at one of the world's largest vet schools in, in the Caribbean with mostly US students. 
And I had been vegan myself for many years, and I've wondered about the health of dogs and cats on vegan diets and been keeping abreast of the scientific research in this field for many years. But nobody had conducted any large-scale studies looking at the health outcomes of vegan cats and dogs until the first ones were published a couple of years ago. And there are now a tiny handful of those, and the results are extremely exciting. So what we did was in 2020, we surveyed over 4,000 cat and dog owners, which was the largest study of its kind ever done. And we were asking questions about health outcomes, behavioural outcomes, indicating how much animals like their different diets, and other key factors such as the factors that were most important to the cat and dog guardians when considering different dietary choices. So we recently published the dog health outcomes in probably the world's leading uh, open access scientific journal, general scientific journal. So open access means that the entire text is freely available on the internet. Readers don't need to pay anything to access it. And what we found in this really large-scale study of more than 2,500 dogs, the data from those was included, we found that the healthiest and least hazardous diets uh, for dogs was nutritionally sound vegan diets. And that's just been backed up by another study, also a really large-scale study that has been published less than two weeks prior to the date of this interview. So we're talking about breaking news. And this has come from researchers at one of Canada's uh, leading veterinary schools, and they looked at more than uh, 1,000 dogs, of whom about 360 were vegan. The average duration of their diets was about three years. So the study was a little bit smaller than ours, but still a very big study. And they also found that the vegan dogs were at least as healthy and in some respects even more healthy than the meat-based dogs. In fact, the lifespan of previously owned vegan dogs was on average one and a half years longer than the lifespans of dogs eating meat-based pet foods. So the data is telling us really clearly, I think, that dogs on nutritionally sound vegan diets are at least as healthy and in some respects may have health benefits. And we don't know why this is, but we can speculate. And I'm seeing certain clusters of benefits in the study that we conducted. We looked at the 22 most common health disorders in dogs, and some of these are related. And uh, we're finding, for example, that the vegan dogs uh, had less problems with gastrointestinal system, skin and ears, and all of those could be related to dietary allergens. And we know the vegan diets are lacking the animal-sourced allergens of beef, lamb, chicken, pork. So it actually makes sense that we would expect to see less problems with the skin and ears because in dogs, dietary allergens very commonly manifest as skin reactions and the ears are the most sensitive part of the skin in this respect and it's where they tend to have hot spots for these these skin problems. So we're seeing less of those and less gastrointestinal problems and that matches not being exposed to dietary allergens. And another cluster of benefits was dogs having less problems with their body weight. This is really important because being overweight is one of the most common health problems in dogs today and reduces their quality of life and their life expectancy uh, quite significantly. So this seemed to be less common, having body weight problems and also related problems such as mobility disorders and uh, other musculoskeletal disorders. And the hazard of overnutrition, I think, is probably more common in meat-based diets than it is in vegan diets. And we certainly know that in amongst human beings, those on vegetarian diets tend to be have less problems with body weight problems uh, than those on meat-based diets. And people on vegan diets uh, are even slimmer, actually, on average, than people on uh, vegetarian diets. 
So it doesn't surprise me that I think we're seeing similar effects in dogs on vegan diets. So ultimately, we have the data demonstrating very clearly that there are those health benefits. We don't know why, but there seem to be reasons that make good sense in at least some of these cases. So this is hugely exciting. There are now eight studies about the health of dogs on vegan diets, with the first large-scale studies only just being published earlier this year. That's that's our really big study, and now a new one by colleagues at a vet school in Canada. All the other studies have been much smaller up until that date. Nevertheless, out of all eight of these studies, seven of them um, support the use of vegan diets in dogs, and the oldest, smallest study does not. So on balance, the weight of evidence is very clearly in favour of the use of nutritionally sound vegan diets for dogs. There was recently a New York Times article that was about quote-unquote trendy diets that people are putting their dogs on. And they had all of these like ridiculous diets and then they lumped veganism in with that. And I was so angry when I saw this. How, how do you get past this idea that veganism is a trendy thing that like a few elite people are doing for their dogs and really get out the word about how this is a giant benefit and not to mention, of course, the ethics involved, which we can get into in a little while. Yeah, I'm, I'm not concerned at all about that because the underlying reasons why this is occurring is that people are increasingly concerned about the health and happiness of their pets, their longevity, their fitness, and also uh, the environment. Things like climate change, biodiversity loss, which are very much caused by the current farming and food systems, along with our other sources of fossil fuel production within societies. So these are interests, they're trends, but they're also really long-term trends that are only going to increase in time. They're not going to be passing fads that fade away. The environment is not going to sort of magically get better and become less of a concern in the future. Climate change isn't going to sort of magically reverse. It's only going to become a bigger and bigger concern and people are going to get more and more interested in finding solutions and uh, ways to live sustainably. The most recent studies are telling us uh, in, in Nature Food that the livestock sector produces around about 20% of all global greenhouse gas emissions. So it is impossible for us to really address the changes that are needed within our societies without addressing the food system. That also includes the pet food system, even though society generally hasn't realised that very much until now. There was another key study demonstrating that up to a quarter of the impacts of the whole food system are due to pet food. Mm. So that's actually really substantial if we think that 20% of all greenhouse gases come from the food system up to a quarter of those, that would be up to 5%. Even if it's a bit lower than that, as I suspect it is a little bit lower than that, it's still a substantial proportion of all the greenhouse gases produced by humanity that virtually no one seems to have focused on seriously so far. The number of people that are currently researching actively on this issue full-time or for a substantial proportion of their time is myself, one other person in Canada at this veterinary school, and that's about it. There have been individual researchers doing bits and pieces around the world, and that's all. So that's an amazing degree of neglect or under-attention for something that could be, well, apparently is the cause of perhaps three or more percent of all human-generated greenhouse gases 
uh, as, as with dietary change for people, the solution is something that is very quickly and easily available and doesn't require us to radically alter our transportation systems, the ways that we work or generate uh, energy to power our industries. It's something that is simply a choice that can be made by consumers. And when they're in locations where they can access nutritionally sound vegan pet food, then that can be made very quickly and easily. And those, those brands are coming onto the market very, very fast now, driven by the recognition that um, many consumers are interested in this and there's an awful lot of money to be made commercially by producing uh, these nutritionally sound vegan pet foods. Well, do you think that most commercial vegan dog foods meet the requirements or do people have to be careful? I think people do need to be careful, as is also the case with uh, meat-based pet foods. Errors during uh, formulation are not uncommon and have been demonstrated in past studies uh, amongst meat-based pet foods, vegan pet foods, probably, and certainly raw meat pet foods as well as conventional meat pet foods. So I think it's important to use a good quality product to be checking the labelling to make sure that the diet is not just intended as a treat or a snack but is formulated to be nutritionally complete and balanced diet and to be looking for companies that hopefully are working with uh, experts such as veterinary nutritionists to ensure their diets are nutritionally sound and that can provide some information about the steps that they take to ensure that the diet is nutritionally sound and a red flag would be a company that didn't have any information or didn't respond to uh, any requests for information, for example. But on the other hand, a company that is able to provide sort of information about the steps that it's taking to ensure the quality and nutritional soundness of its diets, that's a good sign. Another one of the studies in this set that we uh, did recently and published uh, last year looked at the steps taken by manufacturers to ensure the nutritional soundness of their diet. And we surveyed both meat-based and plant-based pet food manufacturers. Uh, we had uh, 10 companies producing uh, vegan, vegetarian or almost vegan pet foods and 19 producing meat-based pet foods. And we looked at every stage from initial design of the product, what level of expertise were they using, the ingredients that were being sourced and how they uh, took steps to ensure that they were uh, sound, the uh, formulation of the diet, the uh, testing of the diet, the steps taken to ensure the soundness of the diet over time and to preserve the quality of the diet, uh, steps during shipping and transportation, information provided to retailers and so on. Most companies were doing things fairly well at most stages. The ones that were doing things slightly better overall were actually the plant-based manufacturers. And my suspicion is that that's because these diets are often seen as being new and so people are going to greater efforts to ensure the nutritional soundness and good quality of these, these diets. Well, we just talked a bit about commercial vegan dog foods. On the other hand, what kinds of things do commercial meat-based dog foods contain? I think there's a couple of obvious hazards of associated with commercial meat-based pet foods. And I think the lack of those hazardous ingredients within vegan pet foods may be explaining some of the clusters of health benefits that we are frequently seeing in the studies that are coming out now. One obvious source would be animal-based allergens. So we're talking about beef, lamb, pork, chicken, for example, and we're seeing less of the side effects that you see as a result of food-sourced allergens. So we're seeing less skin disease, less ear disease, less uh, itchiness, inflammation, hot spots, chewing of the pores, gastrointestinal reactions of all, all sorts of signs. Uh, another study has just come out actually also in the last 
couple of weeks at the time of this interview demonstrating that dogs that have transitioned from a meat-based onto a, a vegan diet have a reduction in all of these sorts of problems. And in fact, I've seen that myself with some cats that uh, we looked after some years ago that when we did look after them, we maintained them on nutritionally sound vegan pet food and their coats became glossier and less scabby and these sorts of benefits are commonly reported actually in people that make these changes. So I think that that's one of the hazards that the meat-based pet foods have. I suspect that the problem of uh, over-nutrition or excessive calories is perhaps one of the most important dietary hazards that they have as well. Apart from that, there are concerns about the quality of the ingredients in those diets, the use of lower quality ingredients. Uh, countries such as the United States, uh, parts of the animals and slaughterhouses that are condemned as being unfit for human consumption, getting recycled into pet food, concerns about things like pesticides, antibiotic and hormonal uh, residues. Uh, when those pharmaceuticals are used to treat uh, intensively farmed animals to try to prevent the disease that would otherwise occur because of overcrowding and poor sanitation and chronic stress amongst those animals. So none of these hazards are likely to be present within uh, nutritionally sound vegan diets. And if you supply a diet which meets all the nutritional needs but doesn't include any of the hazards, it stands to reason that you might have animals that not only thrive but actually do better than those on the traditional diets. And that seems to be what the data is telling us from the large-scale studies that are being published in leading scientific journals now. Well, I am going to get into the cat issue in just a moment, but just one more question about dog food. So, so many people are offended by the idea of feeding animals a vegan diet, which I honestly don't understand. (laughs) Are people overly focused on the concept of what is quote-unquote natural when it comes to feeding their companion animals? And if so, how does that lead them astray? Yeah, I think people, I suppose understandably, are making the assumption that some pet guardians are trying to force uh, their personal ideology onto their pets and it's going to result in suffering for their pets so that's an understandable position but it's not necessarily a position that actually matters to cats and dogs although it might matter very much to people what matters to cats and dogs is whether they're enjoying their food so we're talking about things like the taste and the sense of smell is much more important in cats and dogs than it is in people the texture of the food potentially things like variety and freshness uh, the feeding behavior that they're able to engage in so do cats and dogs really suffer uh, on vegan diets? And in order to test this question, we actually studied this and published this study also in one of the world's leading open access scientific journals uh, last year. We did by far the largest study of this that's ever been conducted. So we looked at more than 2,300 dogs and more than 1,100 cats, and we looked at every behavioural indicator of palatability, so how much they like their food that had ever been described in the scientific literature and then some additional ones as well. Firstly, we looked at uh, how commonly all these animals were likely to display all these behaviours at feeding times. And we looked at whether these behaviours co-varied with one another. And in doing this, firstly, we were able to identify some new indicators of palatability that hadn't been previously recognised. Secondly, we looked at how much these behaviours varied across different pet foods. 
And we ended up with 10 different indicators of positive or negative palatability in dogs and 15 in cats. And we found that across the board, looking at these thousands of, of animals, when we analysed this in great detail statistically, there was, at the end of the day, there was no significant difference in indicators of how much these animals were enjoying their food when they're on vegan pet food versus meat-based pet food. And that's as good as we can do until we learn to actually talk to our cats and dogs and ask them directly. But as far as we can tell from detailed study of, of the behaviour of thousands of these cats and dogs, they're just as happy on vegan pet food on average and their welfare has not been compromised in, in any way, providing that all the necessary nutrients are supplied. So I think that people that have those concerns uh, are not aware of this information and it's understandable that when you're not aware of, of this information, you might well think that it's enforcing an ideology on an animal that is going to result in suffering and get very upset about that. And I think that's why people would get upset about that. They would see that perhaps it's some violation of, of the animal's rights. But this is a human construct. It's a human concept that doesn't actually matter to the animals themselves. And when you study what matters to the animals as, as far as you can by interpreting their behaviour and analysing that, you learn that actually the animals seem to be just as happy. So I think everybody needs to relax about that. They sure do. Why did you decide to get involved in this issue? I'm curious. It's an incredibly exciting issue because these recent studies are telling us that a really significant proportion of all of the global impacts of the livestock sector might be due to pet food. So we're talking about all the greenhouse gases produced, we're talking about land use, water use, fossil fuel consumption, pesticide production and use, fertilisers, biodiversity loss. So we know the food system has got to change, but hardly anybody's really looked at pet food so far. But now, uh, recent studies are telling us that actually uh, the pet food contribution is a major contributor to this problem, even though it's received almost no attention to date. So I wanted to, to actually look at this problem. And as a veterinarian uh, in small animal practice, treating cats and dogs for many years, I had been following this issue and following the scientific studies and I realised that nobody had actually uh, studied yet the health outcomes or the behavioural outcomes or other aspects of this problem when looking at really large numbers of cats and dogs. And so with the support of external funders, and I'm always, I always want to acknowledge them and I'm very grateful to them, it meant that it, I was effectively able to hire uh, junior lecturers to, to do a lot of my teaching marking at the university where I work, and I was able to do all this research instead. So I'm now partway through a multi-year research project looking at all these key aspects of vegan diets for cats and dogs, and the results have been incredibly exciting. Ooh, very exciting. We'll definitely have to have you on in the future when there's more information about those. Let's really get into it. I know a lot of people are going to be uncomfortable with this part of the conversation. So I'm just saying right now that I don't know the right answer here and I'm just exploring the topic. So dare I ask about cats? I think you should dare. Um, and with cats, it's very interesting because until the latest studies were published a few weeks ago, there was actually more evidence about cats published and then there was about dogs because there had, had only been, there had been no large-scale studies of health outcomes in dogs until very recently, but there was in cats. And that was published last year from researchers at the same Canadian veterinary school in one of the world's top veterinary journals this time. 
and they looked at uh, more than 1,300 cats and they found that guardians of vegan cats were more likely to report them as being in very good health and vegan cats were less likely to have problems with the gastrointestinal system, the liver and body weight problems. So actually we're seeing some similar benefits to those that we have recently seen about dogs. So the same principles apply with cats. Although human beings may have strong opinions one way or the other, what the cats actually need biologically are diets which supply all of the necessary nutrients in formulations which are sufficiently palatable, i.e. tasty, that the animals will be happy to eat them, and sufficiently bioavailable, so mostly digestible, so the nutrients can get into the body, circulate in the bloodstream, reach the cells and be used. And providing the diet supplies all of those things, there's no reason to expect that the animals wouldn't thrive on those diets. Um, there, note that there is no requirement there for the diets to include any particular ingredient, whether that be meat or any other ingredient. So vegan diets aim to supply all the necessary nutrients using plant, mineral and synthetic sources, which are the, exactly the same ingredients that go into meat-based pet foods along with meat. Meat-based pet foods are rarely entirely meat. They would be if they're raw meat diets perhaps, but, but not conventional meat-based diets. They also include plant-based material, uh, minerals, and synthetic material. People often worry about the amino acid taurine, which is found in meat, and long-term deprivation of taurine uh, will cause problems for the heart, uh, birth defects, and eye problems as well. However, what people don't know is that the taurine, along with many other nutrients uh, in meat, is effectively largely destroyed by the processing of pet foods by the high temperatures and pressures that are used. And after that processing is finished, then taurine has to be added back into the product and a synthetic source of taurine is used. And exactly the same synthetic source of taurine is applied to the vegan pet foods. So this is an example of where a little bit of knowledge can be a dangerous thing. People have heard of the need for taurine. They know it's in meat. They assume that, therefore, vegan diets are lacking in it and nothing can be further from the truth. So, yeah, the, the biological requirements for cats and dogs are, are very simple. You just need to supply them with all the necessary nutrients in a formulation that they're happy to eat and it's adequately digestible. There's no reason to think that vegan diets can't achieve this. Uh, modern commercial diets are formulated specifically to achieve this. And the study that we published of 29 manufacturers recently demonstrated that the those producing vegan diets actually do this better than those uh, producing the meat-based diets. So it's an understandable concern, but it doesn't stack up when you consider the evidence on this issue. Funny side note, my co-host, Marianne, long, long-time vegan, has gone through periods where she herself needed taurine. <laughs> so she took some. We, we like to pretend that she's a cat. But anyway, just a little side note. Are there even any commercial cat food diets available that are vegan? Oh, there certainly are commercial cat food diets that are available that are vegan. Uh, and the growth in this sector is amazing with companies developing new brands and bringing them to market at an ever faster rate. A couple of years ago, a company would come and talk to me about once every three months about doing this. And now they're coming about once a week for reviews of the latest scientific research uh, in this area. And they're responding to what is an, an exploding consumer market. There is a huge amount of money that will be made by pet food companies that 
develop uh, nutritionally sound uh, vegan brands. The market was already estimated to be worth $9 billion globally in 2020 and is estimated to be worth $16 billion by 2028. And that's before all of this emerging new evidence has come to light, demonstrating the major environmental benefits associated with these diets and health outcomes as good or better for cats and dogs. So once this information becomes widely disseminated, that fast-growing market is going to grow exponentially more quickly. Hmm. What would you do to keep cats healthy on a vegan diet? I ask partly because just generally speaking, I, I am curious, but also more specifically, we did have a vegan veterinarian on a couple of years ago, and she had recommended doing a urinalysis every month. And it just seemed so invasive and painful. Like I, I know my cat would not be okay with that. So I'm just, can you just elaborate on how to keep a cat healthy on a vegan diet? Yeah, there was uh, historically a concern uh, based on a few reports in books and on the internet of cats having urinary problems on vegan diets. So people were recommended to collect urine samples and non-invasively using a cat litter tray with non-absorbent plastic beads so that you can collect a urine sample that way and, and have it checked. However, the large-scale studies that have come out now from Dodd and colleagues at uh, Guelph Vet School in Canada and also our own uh, large-scale study, which is under review at the moment and is forthcoming in another major journal, have actually not demonstrated any statistically increased risk of urinary problems uh, for cats on vegan diets. So when you look at large numbers, it turns out that that concern is unfounded based on the best available evidence today. So we don't need to be doing that anymore, which is fortunate. All that we do need to be doing is ensuring that the diet is nutritionally sound and reasonably balanced. And as I said before, that's just a matter of checking the labelling, making sure that it's not intended as a treat or a snack, but is intended as a nutritionally complete diet. And checking uh, the company, be it trying to use a good quality company that's producing uh, products to good standards, hopefully working with veterinary nutritionists, hopefully can provide some information about the steps that it's taken to ensure nutritional soundness uh, of its diets. Wow. Okay. Good to know. I wonder if it's too far to commute for me to have you be my cat's vet. <laughs> no, I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's not too far to commute. No problem. Yeah. Just get on, I'll just get on like a solar powered sailboat or something. Exactly. So there is currently a company, it's called Because Animals, that is developing cultured mouse meat for cat treats. Do you think cultured meat will end up being one answer for what to feed cats? Yes, I do, because in, as we're seeing in the human space at the moment, there are plenty of people who recognize the problems associated with uh, animal-sourced meat, conventional animal-sourced meat being animal welfare problems from farming animals intensively or extensively, the environmental problems associated with that. But they still want to keep eating meat. So these cultured meat products are being developed for that consumer base. And there are very large numbers of people who, in fact, most meat eaters, I'm confident, if given the choice between eating one meat product that didn't cause any animal welfare problems, any animal cruelty, any environmental problems, and another that did, the vast majority, virtually all, all would happily switch to the better product, even if those people did not agree with the idea of vegan diets. So with 
cat and dog guardians, the proportion of people that are wedded to the outdated concept that meat is necessary is even higher. Most pet guardians, even if they're vegans themselves, are not yet ready to provide vegan uh, pet foods. So providing a cultured meat product which lacked the environmental and animal cruelty problems associated with traditional animal farming would be fantastic for all of those people. It's something that needs to be scaled up at the moment. Uh, This technology is uh, in its early stages. Uh, It's not very available yet, and when it does come initially, it will be costly. Eventually, as it scales up, hopefully the cost will come down greatly. Whereas vegan pet foods are very rapidly becoming available, much they're already widely available in many locations, and they're, they're much more affordable. With respect to costs, I should also say that people using vegan pet foods that are nutritionally sound are also likely to be spending less money on veterinary visits and on medical treatments. We found in our study that the uh, proportion of these animals requiring medications and high numbers of veterinary visits was significantly lower. And that actually results in significant economic benefits, which I think most people haven't realized yet either. Small aside that I definitely should not admit in public, but I am. Anytime I bring home an Impossible Burger, my cat, (laughs) like wherever she is, she's in the attic or whatever, she'll just come like zooming down to wherever I am and like just, I I have to give her a little tiny bite, which is probably not healthy for her, but like, (laughs) that's why I don't want to admit it. But oh my God, I have never seen anyone more obsessed with the Impossible Burger than my cat. It sounds like this is an example of where we want a cultured meat product to be to be less palatable, not not more palatable. Right. Uh, <laughs> and maybe yeah. help. And the other things I'd say is your cat sounds a bit like our seagulls. Uh, we live on the, <laughs> the, the seafront here. We've got these high-rise flats right on the seafront. We have these massive ocean-going seagulls that literally patrol back and forth <laughs> along our, our apartments. So they treat us as sea cliffs. And I'll tell you what, if you leave a sandwich out there on your balcony for more than about 10 seconds, it will be carried away. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That is so funny. I love that. Okay. So I'm always surprised when I'm talking to a vegan who is an ethical vegan or and has been vegan for a long time as I have, and then they might say that they haven't yet transitioned to their animal from a meat-based diet to a vegan diet. I'm always taken aback. I sort of like assume people's dogs are vegan and I'm wrong. Can you offer people advice on how to transition animals from a meat-based diet to a vegan diet? Sure. And look, this is because the vegan community generally is not yet aware of this new information that, to be fair, has only just appeared in scientific journals within about the last year or two. Most people in the world don't know this yet, and it's an incredibly exciting area To once we start to discover that actually cats and dogs can be as healthy or healthier on nutritionally sound vegan diets and there are major environmental benefits. So the work that you're doing in this podcast and that other journalists are doing, getting this information out there is, is super important. In order to transition animals onto these diets, it's been said that many dogs have a tendency to eat first and ask questions later, whereas cats can be much more fussy. And in fact, there's a, there's a veterinary term for this in dogs. We politely refer to the problems that dogs have by bolting down things that are edible or inedible and subsequently having problems. We refer to this as something called dietary indiscretion. 
Um, <laughs> I have that. <laughs> You'll see that in clinical work. All within veganism, but I have that. I'm like, it's vegan, give me, I'll eat it. Right. So if cats and dogs rapidly and suddenly change their diets to something new, you might be lucky and they might be completely fine. Some dogs seem to have cast iron constitutions. However, there is a greater chance of adverse gastrointestinal reactions. And we're talking about things like diarrhea. So you can minimize any adverse reactions by a more gradual transition. And this allows two things. It'll allow time for the digestive enzymes to transition to a set which is more appropriate for the different diet and also uh, allows the bacteria within the gut to transition as well. So by allowing time for those transitions to happen, you're uh, less likely to get adverse reactions. So I always recommend that people try to do this over a couple of weeks. And it's also the case that animals that have been maintained on commercial meat-based diets really long-term, and I'm thinking the classical, uh, stereotypical old fussy cat can become virtually behaviorally addicted to a particular brand of pet food and the reason for that is because commercial pet food companies have spent vast amounts of money and skilled personnel hours trying to work out ways to addict um, people's cats and dogs to their product and that's through the addition of particularly tasty additives one of the best known ones is something called digest and digest is actually partially dissolved entrails of usually chickens so we're talking about intestines and also other abdominal and thoracic viscera uh, the hearts lungs livers, and so on and they're partially dissolved with certain enzymes and additives which help to give the batches different flavors they might be fishy flavors beefy flavors and the can of miscellaneous assorted body parts might then become labeled beef stew or ocean whitefish and it may have a lot to do with the flavorings that have been added and a bit less to do with the actual assorted miscellaneous meat-based ingredients that are uh, within that, that can. So animals that have been fed on a particular brand uh, containing these carefully designed flavorings very long term can be fussy and difficult to transition and if you've got one of those then fear not uh, even the most stubborn of animals have been successfully transitioned over long periods of time, but it can be a very gradual process. It can be a matter of uh, mixing up the uh, new food into the old food, trying to mix it thoroughly, making it difficult for your intelligent cat to go picking out the old food, demonstrating by your behaviour that you think nothing unusual is going on, acting as if you think this is a delicious, tasty, fresh meal. And in fact, you know, you might even eat it yourself if, if your cat's not quick enough about it. Removing the uneaten food and supplying only fresh food. And you consider things like gently warming the food because that helps the odours to be released and the sense of smell is much more important in cats and flavour enhancers such as uh, vegetable oil, nori flakes, uh, nutritional yeast flakes, spirulina. These sorts of things are all available, by the way, along with advice about transitioning onto diets uh, on my website on this, which is uh, sustainablepetfood.info. Great. Yeah. We'll, and we'll link to that as well for people who might be listening to this while driving. Don't write while driving. While there are many wonderful vets in the US, the veterinary profession as a whole, particularly the AVMA, is generally considered a major hindrance to progress for animals, especially farmed animals. Is it the same in the UK? Unfortunately, I think it's generally true worldwide, and that goes back to the origins of the veterinary profession. Back in the dim dark mists of time, uh, one or two hundred years ago, 
the main sectors of society that could afford veterinary care were wealthy horse owners that might have been using horses as pleasure animals or potentially in the military or as workhorses and and those in the farming sectors. There wasn't the disposable income in society to support widespread pet ownership or pet guardianship. So that has now changed, of course, and we have affluent societies, westernised nations that do have significant disposable incomes and there's a high level of uh, pet guardianship and now the vast majority of the veterinary profession works in providing care to small animals, the cats and dogs and other companion animals. In poorer nations, the reverse is still true and other nations such as China are transitioning at the moment uh, and adopting what they see as these desirable affluent lifestyles and so their pet ownership is rising rapidly. So the origins of veterinary schools have been associated with supporting farmers to maximise the productivity of farmed animals on a a sort of a herd level or a flock level without caring as much about the individual animals and potentially also supporting um, wealthy uh, horse owners as well. Veterinary schools today continue to receive uh, significant funding from sectors which are involved in these uses of animals and we're talking about the farming sectors and the laboratory animal research sector and this actually compromises uh, their ability to take positions which quite rightly point out the animal welfare problems associated with these uses of animals. The AVMA aims to represent all sectors of the veterinary profession and, and that really spans a very wide spectrum from farmed animal vets and laboratory animal vets at one end who are involved in industries uh, using animals very invasively and whose incomes are directly dependent on those industries. Two, at the other end, animal welfare specialists such as myself, whose job is to provide expert knowledge about the animal welfare problems associated with those uses of animals and many others. So the general public views veterinarians broadly as animal welfare experts and feels that they should uh, be leading society on progressing animal welfare issues. But the reality is quite different because the AVMA wants to, I think, try to support veterinarians working in the farm and laboratory animal sectors and indeed all those other sectors uh, as well. Well, one of the major complaints about the veterinary profession in the U.S. is that the veterinary schools tend to weed out the more proactive students. <laughs> and then the culture in vet schools pushes people away from taking a more progressive position. Is that a problem with veterinary education in the UK? In the UK, surprisingly, and to its credit, it's the only major region of the, the world in which animals have not been used harmfully and on a wide scale in veterinary education and this disappeared in favour of humane teaching methods so many decades into the past that nobody can remember anymore when this happened. It was a very long time ago. Whereas animals continue to be used very invasively in preclinical curricula uh, in subjects like uh, biochemistry, physiology, parasitology, where they're used as uh, in demonstration experiments, um, which can be very invasive with animals killed at the end of those procedures to demonstrate scientific concepts have been well established for decades and also killed to be dissected in anatomy. So that occurs very widely in the preclinical part of the curriculum. And then in the clinical and surgical training parts, animals traditionally have been used as teaching models uh, whereby students anaesthetise animals, practice surgical procedures on them and then kill them uh, at the end of the procedure prior to regaining consciousness. 
So when I was a student, a veterinary student in Western Australia, I, I launched a major campaign at my veterinary school to replace this sort of harmful animal use with humane teaching methods and to establish an alternative humane surgical training program. And that was very successful. Um, and we went on to establish similar programs at other Australian veterinary schools. Our first students graduated without harming animals in surgical training in 2005. And I've worked with students in the US and other places such as New Zealand to bring in similar changes. And there has been a sea change going on in veterinary education in the last uh, couple of decades. And it's the case now that there are only a few terminal surgical procedures in which animals are killed in veterinary schools left in Australia. There are many more still in the United States, unfortunately, but there has been a, a wide recognition that humane teaching methods need to be introduced and veterinary schools are taking some steps to do that, which is really good news. It has been the case, reportedly, that applicants to veterinary courses that display sympathies that could be interpreted as being animal rights sympathies will be weeded out of the selection process because of a fear that they might come in and campaign against uh, various harmful uses of animals within the curriculum or within research that might be going on at the veterinary school. Uh, this is not something that would be legally permissible I think, if it were a formal policy, and so it's not something that is ever written down with very rare exceptions, but it is something that apparently does occur and continues to occur. So I have guidance for students on how to approach this issue and for people who wish to get into uh, veterinary courses. And I have a website which is called humanelearning.info and I have advice there for students on how to present themselves when uh, applying for admission to veterinary courses and how to maximise their chances of success if they need to campaign for humane teaching methods after being admitted to veterinary courses. And students and occasionally faculty that have supported them have been very successful on this issue worldwide and there is a sea change underway so that humane teaching methods are being brought into veterinary curricula across the US and internationally now, which is great news. Oh, there's some hope there. And your website, Humane Learning, tell us more about it. Tell us more about what we can find there. Sure. So humanelearning.info includes uh, guidance for students on how to uh, maximise their chances of success when asking for humane teaching methods, along with all sorts of resources to help them. So links to the most recent studies, which show that students using humane teaching methods have educational outcomes which generally are as good or in about a third of the cases actually better than those achieved uh, via harming animals. So this, this sort of research is on that website and that's something that my colleagues and I have been conducting and publishing in key open access scientific journals within the last couple of years. It's another area that I've been uh, very involved in. There are links to free uh, online alternatives and they'd be maybe uh, web-based uh, dissection simulations alternatives libraries where people who can't uh, necessarily afford to purchase alternatives can borrow those and then hopefully use them uh, in their courses and lots of other useful resources to help people as well, including examples of submissions that students have prepared and delivered to veterinary schools asking for alternatives, which have been successful, which could then be adapted and reused uh, elsewhere, and also inspirational success stories from students around the world. So that's all there to help people, and that's uh, humanelearning.info. Wonderful. That's cool. That sounds great. I'm sure that our listeners will love it. 
I have one more question for you before we get into our bonus content. Do you get a lot of pushback from other vegans in the UK? Initially, there's uh, a lot of pushback from vegans and veterinarians and uh, all sorts of groups about the concept of vegan companion animal diets. But once I actually lay out the evidence on this issue, I've not had any significant pushback. And that's been surprising to me. I had expected more, but I think it shows that the opposition of people to vegan pet food is based on a lack of knowledge. And when you provide that knowledge and you address the key concerns that people have, almost everybody is a rational person and they change their position. We all want the diets that are going to produce the best health outcomes in our cats and dogs, the best welfare for farmed animals, and the least adverse environmental impacts on the planet. So this is a really easy sell, as it were. And, you know, people don't need to be convinced. I think they just need to, to know what the information is and what the evidence is, and then most people will make, will make the right choices. It's funny, I actually misspoke. I said, do you get a lot of pushback from vegans? But I meant vets. <laughs> so, But I think you kind of answered for both. So there is pushback from vets. And in fact, the main veterinary association in the United Kingdom has uh, been issuing statements opposed to the use of vegan pet food for some time, including recently. But in response to that, I, I published a technical letter in the leading veterinary journal in the United Kingdom and I said, well, there are eight studies looking at health outcomes in dogs and seven of them support the use of nutritionally sound vegan diets and, and one doesn't. And here's the you know pros and cons of all the diets. The one that doesn't, for example, is, is the oldest one and it's the smallest one. It only included eight animals and the exercise regime they are subjected to or no relationship to the reality of domesticated dogs in people's homes so i said look here's the evidence and the weight of evidence overall is very clearly in support of nutritionally sound vegan diets so veterinarians are evidence-based so nobody has any rational reason for disagreeing with that and nobody has it seems you are the person we all want like so many people i know who have animals just are endlessly frustrated with the fact that their vets don't get it, or perhaps their vets reprimand them for putting their dogs on very healthy vegan diets. I mean, my dog's blood work speaks for itself, as does mine, you know, for people who are skeptical. And I would just, how do we make more Andrew Knights? How do we, how do we clone you? Is there like a kind of cultured meat thing we can do here? <laughs> swab your ear and make more of you? I'd suggest feeding me an experimental regime uh, comprised of a whole lot of vegan magnums, uh, tasty, <laughs> tasty beverages, and then in injecting some uh, electricity and, and see what happens. Okay, but, <laughs> perfect. <laughs> but, but I think the real problem is that veterinarians are simply not aware of this information. Uh, there have been plenty of studies showing that alternative and experimental diets are often formulated with nutritional deficiencies. And so veterinarians are reasonably and rightly sceptical of new diets. However, once they see the evidence, then it's pretty easy to turn them around because they all know that they need to be providing advice and positions which are evidence-based, based on scientific and medical evidence. And they're just not aware of this evidence. And that's why 
what you're doing is so important because this is one of the first channels that I've had to actually get this information to US-based audiences. These really large-scale studies in leading scientific journals have only been around for the last couple of years and in crucial cases just for the last few weeks. And there are almost no vets in the world that actually know this information yet. Wow, that's amazing. What you're doing is really revolutionary. And I'm so grateful that you joined us on our Hanaus. Please hang on the line so we can pick your brain a little bit more for our flock. But before we go, can you reiterate how people can find you online and support your efforts? Sure. So people can find information about this issue, vegan pet food, at my website, sustainablepetfood.info. And it's incredibly easy to find me on the internet. Uh, I'm Andrew Knight with a K, and my website's andrewknight.info. Thank you so much. Very, very, very exciting stuff here. Lots of hope, and I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much. Greetings, listeners. Just a reminder that if you are a Flock member, you will get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast episode goes up, or you can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the Flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month or $100 a year at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. Also, if you are a Flock member, please join us for our Flock First Friday Zoom calls, which are once a month on the first Friday of the month at 4 p.m. Eastern, where we have inspiring guests and great conversations about activism and animals and life in general. So if you're a member of the Flock, check out that Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. And if you write to info at ourhenhouse.org, you can also set up a one-on-one conversation with me too, which I hope you do because I always have a lot of fun and I want you to also. And thanks so much for joining us in our mission to change the world for animals. Bye. Anxiety surprising. If there's one person they love to hate in the animal abuse industries, it's Cory Booker. Senator from New Jersey, of course. Senator Booker's photo op with animal activist criminals. This is from speaking of research. So it's not an animal ag publication. It's a research publication. And they are pointing out that a recent blog post by animal activist organization notorious for burglary and theft of research animals. Direct action everywhere, of course, is what they're talking about. Apparently, they had a report in this blog post about the alleged felons meeting with Senator Booker in Walnut Creek, California, and talking about their upcoming court trial. I think this is is Wayne Shung and Paul Picklesimer with the upcoming trial in Utah. And this does point out, while the court trial in question was about burglary and theft of pigs from the agriculture industry, of course, what the trial is going to decide is whether it was burglary and theft of pigs, but I digress. The interaction and tacit endorsement by a sitting United States senator is unsettling. So, you know, these animal abusers, they all stick together. But, you know, they are mostly interested in themselves as, as well, as is pointed out by this next sentence. Mostly because endorsement of criminal activities against animal agriculture might be paired with endorsement of criminal activities against animal research. I... Uh, And they point out that both Senator Booker and DXC have targeted animal research in the past. Targeted. Like complained about, criticized. Like, is, is that what they're talking about? 
They're really out to get Cory Booker, so that's one more reason to like him. If the actions of alleged felons are not prosecuted and instead are legitimized by legislators like Senator Booker, this tactic may continue to be used against all type of activities involving animals across the country. Uh, yeah, let's hope so. Go Cory Booker. Gotta love him. All right. NMPF, IDFA, applaud passage of Healthy Meals, Healthy Kids Act. You might be wondering what I'm talking about. All right. The NMPF is the National Milk Producers Federation, and the IDFA is the International Dairy Foods Association. So you know that you, you're going to love them. And this is about this bill that just passed uh, the House Education and Labor Committee. And it's called the Healthy Meals, Healthy Kids Act. It's one of those Orwellian titled, uh, titled bills. And it, it reauthorizes federal nu child nutrition programs. And they are, they are very concerned with the milk part. And the milk part is pretty upsetting, I got to tell you. The fact that they are getting these kinds of statutes passed is, is indicative of the fact that the milk industry is in crisis. And they have a lot to be anxious about. But, you know, they're doing something about it. Your tax dollars are paying for what they're doing about it. They take an important step, according to this article, in increasing students' access to nutritious food by securing more permanently the ability for schools to serve all milk options consistent with the dietary guidelines. They don't spell out here what all milk options are, and I'm not totally sure, but from the research I've done, it appears to be that they want the ability to serve whole milk, you know, which I think has been limited in the past in some circumstances because obviously of the enormous amount of saturated fat in it and flavored milk. So think about that and think about if they end up being able to serve flavored whole milk. I mean, they might as well just sit kids down and give them a box of chocolates for lunch. Uh, and this is what they call healthy school, healthy food. The legislation apparently also points to the importance of the nutrients milk provides for students. Well, really, can we legislate that? <laughs> like, do they get to pass a law saying that milk is healthy? Because it ain't. It just really ain't. The Healthy Meals, Healthy Kids Act maintains the requirement that milk substitutes be nutritionally equivalent to real milk. Now think about that, milk substitutes. Obviously, they're talking about plant-based milks. None of them are going to be nutritionally equivalent. I don't, I, it seems to me... They're not exactly the same thing. <laughs> they're better, but they're not exactly the same thing. So how could they be? Unless the only situation in which that, you know, is not the case, the student is being offered a substitute for medical or other diet-related needs. So again, students have to go out of their way in order to get plant-based milk. They have to get maybe a medical note. Uh, some, so they have to present some kind of reason. But, you know, to get whole milk, perhaps even whole chocolate milk, they just have to show up at school and allow themselves to be to be poisoned. But, you know, uh, according to uh, this article, which is from the National Milk Producers Federation, they're going to continue their efforts to further strengthen nutritional equivalency requirements. Equivalency, again, like it has to be exactly the same as milk, a dairy milk, to protect access to milk's essential nutrients like saturated fat, uh, I don't know, in child nutrition programs. It's pretty easy to get calcium. It's the only essential nutrient I know of. All right, this, is, this last article is kind of upsetting. I guess you could consider that a trigger warning because, you know, it is very sad, but it has to do with the amount that anxieties are rising about the drought. 
And this is only going to continue and it's going to get worse and worse. This will give you some indication of how it will be handled. Tough hulling decisions come with drought and forage shortages. This is from Drovers, the website Drovers. This is about Missouri, where they've been having a lot of dry weather. Uh, with dry weather and short pastures, Missouri cow herd owners face tough hulling decisions. One way to match cows' needs to available grass is to sell cows. Interestingly, there are two words in here that mean kill cows. Uh, culling. We all know that, you know, their, their word for kill is cull. It's so odd that it's so close. They cull the herd, and um, that means they're killing some of the cows. But the other word that means kill here is sell cows. When they talk about selling cows, they're talking about selling them to slaughter, not selling them as pets. So the first cut is simple when you're giving careful thought to which grass eaters go first. Now we're calling them grass eaters. The first cut is simple. Even the best herds have poor performers that need to be culled. Sell cows not pregnant or nursing. There is no freed for freeloaders when forage is short. So now the cows, because they're not pregnant, uh, because they haven't had produced a, a, a baby, they are now freeloaders. They're eating your grass and you're not getting anything back from them. Next, cull lactating cows with bad disposition, bad eyes, bad feet, or bad udders. Well, you know, like if you're a cow, stay healthy, because if you don't, you're done. Now it's time to remove cows with blemishes or poor doing calves. So if your calf is not well, you're probably screwed as well. Another strategy calls for splitting a herd into young and old females. Sell one of the groups, i.e. kill one of the groups. Doesn't really explain why that makes sense. For optimists, drought-induced culls can be beneficial. It forces decisions and management. Just thinking about what, what happens out there in the grasslands to these poor cows is, is disturbing. It's disturbing. And though their anxieties are rising about, about drought, I can't say that I'm glad to hear anything. Even though it is limiting that industry, it's just all so sad. Because you think of what these cows go through. They're the ones out on this land, not being able to get enough food, not being able to get enough water, and then this is what happens to... Anyway, I'm digressing. You all know that. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and if you're able, we invite you to join the flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another way to support us is to leave us a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favored charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, Thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast, and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Vicki Bichler for her membership and administrative help. We'd also like to give a shout out to the amazing Veronica Kalinska, who designed our brand new logos and other graphics. 
We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. So don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for tuning in. 